The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning once again. So we are in week four of our series called Formed by Jesus, and this is a really important talk for us to have this morning. This is a talk on prayer and fasting. This is not about how to pray faster, just to clear that up. Now, there might be no topic that's more, that makes Christians feel more guilty than the topic of prayer. Am I right about that? Probably so. Uh, raise your hand if you feel like you just fall short in your prayer. Like, let's just get it out of the way. Uh, we know that that's most of us. That's probably all of us. Uh, you can look around. It's pretty much everybody in the room. And uh, I have struggled over the years, just like many of you. Sometimes I think I don't have the time, or when I do try to pray, my mind begins to wander, and it's hard to stay focused. And, uh, but if someone told us that we could spend one hour talking with our favorite celebrity, or maybe someone from back in history, I am sure that we would jump at that chance. But with prayer, we have this constant access to God, the most fascinating being in the universe, and we just yawn at the idea. So why don't we desire it more? Well, if we're going to have a healthy prayer life, we have to start with the scriptures, and we might struggle to pray because we believe that our prayers need to be perfect, and they never are. So whenever we go to the Psalms, we see examples of how we are supposed to pray. So turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 27, and we're going to look at the two sides of prayer that we might see in some of the Psalms. And Psalm 27.4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So if you remember, what was God's temple? It's it's the place where God dwelled. So this is written by David. Is David saying that he wants to dwell in the physical building the rest of his life? That's not what he's saying. He's saying he wants to dwell in God's presence. The temple was where God dwelled. He says he wants to dwell in God's presence. So we think that prayer sometimes is simply just making requests to God, like asking God for stuff. And it is that, but it's also more than that. We see one of the great purposes of prayer here in this passage, that it's to gaze upon the beauty of God. It is to dwell with him. And then flip over to Psalm chapter 63. We see a different side of prayer in this psalm. It says, Oh God, verse one, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Then skip down to verse five. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So we see a contrast here in the Psalms of a couple of different things. We see It's a psalm of David whenever he is in the wilderness in Judah, and he has this longing for God. And he describes it as this deep thirst. He says his body feels faint because it it longs for God in this way. He says he, he desires God's presence, but God seems distant and absent. You ever experience those times where it feels like your prayers just hit the ceiling, and it feels like God isn't really responding or God isn't really open to hearing your prayers. You can feel that way for us sometimes. But a few verses later, he describes his soul being satisfied in God. This is a future time. In the same way that one's stomach is satisfied 
with food. So the two, prayer, the two sides of prayer are satisfaction and struggle. Many of the Psalms, the writer is crying out to God, God, where are you? Making cries because it seems like God is nowhere to be found. And I think you and I, we can struggle to pray because we don't think we're allowed to pray like that. We don't think we can pray these like honest prayers like you often see in the Psalms. C.S. Lewis once said, lay before God what is in you, not what is supposed to be in you. We think sometimes that our prayers are supposed to be these, these pretty or tidied up presentations to God. And you look at the Psalms, that's not what we find there. The Psalms show us that God wants us to bring everything to him. And that's, that includes all that is in us. From J.R. Packer and Carolyn Nystrom's book, this is their subtitle, Prayer is Finding Our Way Through Duty to Delight. There will always be this element of struggle with praying. If you and I don't understand that, we will never get through the duty of it to the delight of it. Now, just to let you know, today's going to be a practical, more of a practical how-to. This is not going to be a big-picture vision message on, mer- on, on prayer, but it's going to be a practical how-to uh, for some, some things that I'm going to share with you that I have learned throughout my life, people have taught me throughout the years. And if you want to go back and, and listen to previous talks on this topic, I'd recommend a few talks that cover prayer in the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago. And also, if you want to go way back, go to 2020. We did a prayer series. This is back, I think, maybe summer of 2020. This is back when we had to preach to an empty audience here, empty room, which was very traumatizing for us as the preachers. And, uh, but go back and you can listen to those, those talks. There's five or six talks on, on prayer as we dive, in, dive into this more deeply. So over the years, I've had mentors share ideas about how to pray more effectively in my own life. When I was in college, someone introduced the idea of going on prayer walks. And they said, hey, if you get distracted and you can't focus, try to just go for a walk. And I thought, isn't that more distracting? And for me, somehow it wasn't. It helped me focus more on my prayers. I found I could stay in prayer longer when I would do it in that way. Now, for you, you might be different. Uh, That might not be true for you. You may find yourself more distracted by that kind of thing, but there's no perfect formula, but each person has to find what's most, most helpful for them in their prayer lives. Now, another analogy I've heard used as it relates to our prayer lives, I know sometimes people will say, well, I just, I just kind of pray without ceasing like the Bible talks about. I just kind of drive around, and when I'm in the store, when I'm walking around, I just pray all the time, and I would say that's great. That is what Scripture, I think, wants us to do. But I, I do think there's, there's benefit for us carving out specific prayer time in our walk with God. And you might liken it to, if you're married, like going on a date with your spouse. Or if you have a friend that you're really close with, just having lunch with that friend and reconnecting is a really important thing. And what you will find in those human relationships is that when you spend time with someone in a focused way, it will then inform all of your small talk with that person. Have you noticed that? That it will change like your approach to that person throughout the week in your just everyday interactions with them. I think the same is true in our walk with God. That when you carve out time with him, the time spent with him, it will then inform the time that you spend with him in the pray without ceasing moments that we might talk about. 
It's really important for us to consider as we think about our prayer lives. So I'm going to show you this morning just what we call the movements of prayer. This is taken from a book by Richard Foster on the topic of prayer. And he describes it like this. There's the first movement, which is upward. This is seeking the intimacy that we need. And this is another take on the ACTS acronym, which is Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. And he's just combining adoration and thanksgiving together. Whenever you and I pray, we often jump right to requests. But it's important, I think, for prayer to come first as our first priority because prayer is going to motivate all the other kinds of prayer that we're going to discuss today. If we see God's holiness, we are more likely to see our sin and our need for confession. So if you're not yet a Christ follower or if you're a new believer, it might seem strange that we are supposed to praise God. I mean, the Bible commands us to praise God. Now, why does God do that? Why does God command us to praise him? If a person, if you had a friend that wanted you to praise them, we would say, that's arrogant. I'm not doing that. So, so why does God get to do that in our lives? Well, if you're not, you know, C.S. Lewis addresses this in his book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. He raised the question, why do we praise anything at all? Why do we praise a beautiful picture or a good book or a good movie? If you, see, if you go see a good film and you enjoy it, you go tell people about it. We praise those things because we've enjoyed those things. So what do we do when something brings us joy? We tell others about it. This was C.S. Lewis's realization. He realized whenever we enjoy something, it naturally overflows into praise. And he said this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not merely express, but it completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. He believed that expressing praise brought the enjoyment of something full circle. Now, I think sometimes we men, we have difficulty expressing things that we're feeling sometimes. I'm reminded of this whenever I go to the store to buy my wife a card for certain occasions. And I start thumbing through the different cards and stuff. And I'm amazed at how many of the cards that are written for the guy to give to um, his wife uh, or his you know, fiance or girlfriend. And they often say this kind of statement. I know I don't say this enough, but I really do love you. And it's a reminder how often we, we just forget to say the thing that we know to be true. In the early days of a relationship, the enjoyment of someone just overflows into praise naturally. You're, you're saying things to one another, writing letters to one another. Uh, the, the enjoyment is incomplete until we say the words. So when the Bible commands praise, it, it flows out of seeing God for who he is. It's as simple as that. The next passage is, I have a misprint on the screen here. It should be Psalm 135, 1 through 3. And it says this, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise as servants of the Lord who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing to his name for it is pleasant. So praise comes from seeing the inherent beauty and goodness of God and praising him is what allows us to develop love for him. If you're struggling to just sense this this love for God, just spend some time in your prayer life just 
thinking of things to praise him for, aspects of his character and his, and his goodness, and recognize how a love for him begins to get stirred up in you. So the first movement is, is upward. The second movement is inward. This is seeking the transformation that we need. And this is now, this is the hard stuff. This is confession and repentance. And it's very difficult because we don't like admitting our faults to anyone else or even to God. Now, I know that many of us, we see God only one way. We see him as only loving and forgiving, but we forget that he's also holy. And we take his forgiveness for granted as if God just owes it to us. You know, the biblical writers did not really see things that way. They seemed to recognize the, the costliness of forgiveness. And it's why you see many passages where the writer seems overwhelmed, even surprised at the idea of God's forgiveness. In Micah chapter 7, the prophet writes, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Do you see that? Do you see this acknowledgement that he's asking the question, I mean, who is a God like you who pardons sin? Like, what what kind of God would do something like that? It almost seems like he's overwhelmed. He almost doesn't fully buy into the idea that God could be that loving and that kind. We see this healthy balance of acknowledging God's forgiveness without sounding like God owes it to him. If I were the one writing scripture, it might read like this. Of course you're forgiving, Lord. That's your job. From the book of Dave, chapter 1, verse 1. That book only has one verse, by the way. But this is how we think of forgiveness, that God somehow owes it to us. But the cross shows us that forgiveness is free, but it's also costly at the same time. So if we're in Christ, there is no sin that puts us back under condemnation, but that does not mean that we take sin lightly. On the other hand, sin is so serious that Jesus had to come and die for it. Tim Keller says it like this. Only when we see both the freeness and the cost of forgiveness will we get relief from the guilt as well as liberation from the power of sin in our lives. Many make a mistake in one direction or the other. We either think that forgiveness is is easy, and so of course God should give it to me. Or we say, the other extreme is saying, well, well, how can God forgive me after what I've done so many times? If we see forgiveness only as free, then we're going to live this entitled life like he owes it to us. But if we see it only as costly, then we're going to live in shame and condemnation. So we have to see it as both. It is free and costly at the same time. And here's why this is really important, because many people see confession only as just admission. If I'm going to confess to God or someone else, it just means I admit what I did was wrong and just move on. Well, John Stott, he wrote a book called Confess Your Sins, and in it he says that real repentance is not just confessing the sin, but forsaking the sin. He says this, we begin by admitting the sin for what it is, but then secondly, we forsake it, rejecting and repudiating it. This is to adopt a right attitude towards God, towards both God and the sin itself. So we don't just 
confess the sin to God, but we ask God to change our attitudes and our appetites for any particular sin struggle. We've got to see sin not just as dangerous, but how it grieves the heart of God. Sin sin is a violation of a relationship, not just a rule. Not just a rule. So there's the upward, then the inward, then there's the outward, and this is seeking the ministry that we need. Whenever we talk about prayer, this is what we most likely talk about is the idea of, of I'm praying for people, praying for myself, requests I might have, and we ask God for help for ourselves, for others, the world. And, and at times we can, there are some that might think of this kind of prayer as the lowliest form of prayer. You may be sitting out there and think, you know, I never really feel like I'm worthy to go to God and ask him for a request. Listen, that's not really a biblical idea. God wants us to come to him and to ask expectantly. We discuss this a lot during the Sermon on the Mount series that he wants you to come to him and make requests to him. So it's not prayer in the lowest form. This is part of how we're commanded to pray, you know, asking, and we even see in the Bible complaining and waiting for God, asking God for what we need spiritually and emotionally and materially. We're not going to spend as much time on this one because we've covered a lot of this in our previous series. So there's, there's upward, there's inward, And there's outward, as you think about ways in which you can begin praying for uh, yourself, but also uh, people that you love and care for. Now, if I could recommend one action step for you to take, it would be this, to go purchase this book. It's not very expensive. It's called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. And this was a transformational book for me a few years ago and just how it helped my prayer life. I used to see Bible reading as one thing and prayer as something totally different, like completely separated. And I think he really shows you how you can bring those two things together. Now, it's not the same thing as Bible study. That's different. I think that's still focused on that at a different time. But we're not going to grow, grow in prayer if we don't grow in God's word. We've got to be immersed in it. Whenever we, we first had kids many years ago, I would go into their room when they were in the little uh, baby crib, and I would just look at my son or my daughter, and I would just look at them and just pray over them. And I was always amazed. at I would always think about, like, this, this human being is going to somehow learn language. And that just blows my mind. Like, they don't take a class. We don't teach them a class. That's not how it works. We just, we just immerse them in it. We immerse them in language. They somehow learn how to talk. So they, they start saying single words, and then, then two words, then three, then four, then, then complete sentences. And as they grow, they learn how to complain and fight and argue. And at times you wish they could go back to not knowing how to talk again, right? Um, whenever a kid says their first word, what is it most often? It's usually daddy or dada, something like that, something easy, easy to pronounce, now, for my daughter, that wasn't the case. We had this dog named Zoe, and the first word she ever blurted out was our dog's name, Zoe. And it was so plainly obvious to us. And so she, she passed right over me and said the dog's name first. I was rather offended by that. But that's what happened. But when kids start saying these words, how does it happen? They don't take a class 
We don't like teach them formally how to speak. They just get thrown into the deep end. They get immersed in language. And our prayers, I think, are similar. That our prayers should arise from being immersed in God's word, which is his language to us. As we plunge ourselves into that sea, we begin speaking his language back to him. Donald Whitney says this. He says, what you are doing is taking words that originated in the heart and mind of God and circulating them through your heart and mind back to God. By this means, his words become the wings of your prayers. He shows you in this book how to pray through a passage, particularly the Psalms. And the process is fairly simple. You open the Bible, you start reading it, you pause at each verse, and then you turn it into a prayer. And if you don't understand the meaning of a verse, you just go to the next one. You can do this even if what comes to your mind has nothing to do with the text that you're reading. Now, before you get worried, this is about praying, not studying or teaching the Bible. We don't take take things out of context whenever we study or teach, but here's how he defends this idea of praying the Bible. He says, the Bible tells us to pray about everything, and we know that because in Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So we can pray about every person, object, issue, circumstance, fear, situation. We can bring anything to God in prayer. So again, interpreting or teaching the Bible is a different discipline than praying the Bible. Many years ago at a formal church I used to work at, when I was an intern, we had this uh, other guy who was a junior high intern. He was a really good-hearted guy, but he hadn't had much experience teaching the Bible yet. And so they put him in front of these junior high kids on a Sunday morning and said, hey, you're going to teach this passage. And uh, he taught them from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And I guess he thought, these are junior high kids. There's no husbands and wives in here. So he decides to teach that Paul is saying, Christians, live your lives. And we're like, wait, what? You can't, you can't change the text. You can't change the meaning of the text. Just because that rhymes doesn't mean you can change what that says. And it's just an, an error that a young Christian might make. So, so listen, praying the Bible is different than teaching it. Whitney says that if you're praying the Bible... And you read, you come across Psalm 130, verse 3, where it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And you see that that verb mark there in your Bible in verse 3, and then your friend Mark Rojas comes to mind, then guess what? It's okay to pray for Mark. You know the verse isn't about Mark, but it's okay to pray for him. You can do that. But if you're, if you're reading Leviticus chapter 4, verse 18, where it talks about putting, putting blood on the horns of the altar, you are not allowed to pray for your Texas longhorns. There are some limits here. <laughs> this is not just free-form thinking, okay? Johnny Erickson Tata, she says, when, when we bring God's word directly into our praying, we are bringing God's power into our praying. Now, I understand this method might make some of you nervous. I felt the same way at first until I started practicing it and doing it in my prayer life. But if we don't 
use God's word as a guide for prayer, then what's the alternative? Using ourselves as a guide? How's that working out for us? Now, you might ask, is there an app for what he's talking about? And yes, there is. And it's called the Five Psalms app. And you can look it up and download it. And this gives you the option of selecting from five psalms in the course of a day. Just pick one of the five for that day. And you can pray through that psalm. And so as you read and study other parts of Scripture, and he shows you how to pray other parts of Scripture as well, but focus mainly on the psalms, primarily the psalms, since they are written for that very purpose. And after praying this way, there are people have said these kinds of statements. My mind didn't wonder. My prayer was more about God and less about me. The time was too short. It seemed like a real conversation with a real person. I prayed about things I normally don't pray about. And I can give firsthand testimony that all those things are true. You will find praying in ways that you never thought of praying before. When you immerse yourself in God's language and begin speaking his words back to him. Now, the part of the sermon that you're looking forward to, we're going to talk about fasting now. Are you ready? So what do we mean by fasting? Well, in a biblical sense, fasting is voluntarily foregoing food for some limited time for an expressed spiritual purpose. Now, when we say fasting, if you're new to this idea, we're not talking about you necessarily spending uh, you know, half a day not eating and then you're praying for eight straight hours, ten straight hours. That's great if you can do that, but most of us can't do that. What we're talking about is when you decide to skip a meal or skip two meals, just set aside this time that you would normally be preparing a meal and eating a meal and cleaning up afterwards. Spend that time in prayer. It might be 30 or 40 minutes in the morning, 30 or 40 minutes at lunch, and then possibly the same thing around dinner time. You'd be amazed at how normal the rest of your day might look on a fasting day. You can do normal things on a fasting day. That, that might mean that you spend time playing with your kids, throwing the football in the front yard, or going to the store. Maybe go see a movie as long as it's a Christian movie starring Kirk Cameron, right? I'm glad you knew that was a joke, by the way. But whenever fasting is mentioned in the Bible, it is always in reference to food. Now, just for a quick disclaimer, if you struggle with disordered eating, or if you have a medical condition, or you are pregnant, then we don't recommend that you fast in this way. We recommend you might abstain from something else that's a part of your life on a regular basis. And so it makes you understand that do not attempt something like this if it would not be good for you for health reasons, or even for some people for emotional reasons. But find that maybe other things you can abstain from. But as far as the, the Bible is concerned, when the word fasting is used, it's always in reference to food. Now, many people use the word today in reference to other things. We say things like, I'm fasting from social media, or I'm fasting from my phone, or I'm fasting from Xbox for a week. That's just called growing up. <laughs> so a better word for that might be abstinence for things like that. And th listen, those are all good things and great things. But I don't think we can equate that to the same thing as what the Bible refers to as, as fasting. Now, why would someone desire to fast from food? Why would they? If we see Bible reading and prayer as 
legalistic, then we really might see fasting from food the same way. But what is all the rage right now in our world? It's intermittent fasting, right? I can't look at my phone without seeing someone put an ad on there, like download this app or go to this website and learn how to do this better or to start it for yourself. It's all the rage right now for some people. And some of you out there, you're doing that. That's great. If you're not doing it, you at least know people who are, and you know that because they won't stop talking about it, right? Now, we're usually more open to something if we can see the physical benefits, the immediate physical benefits, but not as much if the benefits are simply spiritual. Maybe you've seen those us and them memes. This might be an example of one uh, for fasting. Them, if you could fast, if you fast, it will be spiritually good for you. Us, well, I don't know. That sounds legalistic, crazy, and a bit unhinged. And then the flip side of that, them, if you fast, it will be physically good for you. Us, really? Tell me more. And we have this, we operate under this idea that if something is for our spiritual state, we see it as like, that's legalism. If it's for our bodies, we're like, sign me up. And we struggle with that. I know I, know I struggle with this. Now, the body is spiritual because God created it. So we can't separate the, the physical and the spiritual. We can't do that. That's what the Gnostics did, and we're still doing that some today. But if we're willing to admit that fasting does carry some health benefits, then might it benefit us spiritually as well? If you're already fasting intermittently, then you're, listen, you're already halfway there. When you skip a meal or two meals, then I would recommend go spend that time you'd normally be eating or prepping your food and then eating it, let's say 30 or 40 minutes, go spend that time in prayer and redeem it. You're already halfway there. So what is the purpose of fasting? When we look at the Bible, we see many purposes for it. There's praying for God's strength, seeking his guidance, expressing grief and sorrow, seeking deliverance, overcoming temptation, expressing love and worship to God, repenting and returning to God. One of the most profound examples in the book of Jonah, after Jonah preaches a message of repentance to the Ninevites, it says that they repent, and there's this nationwide fast that just bubbles up from the people of Nineveh the, the, this, these, this pagan people, and they recognize that they need to repent and turn from their sin, their wicked ways, and it says they institute a fast from the people and also from the king himself of Nineveh. We also look at Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus has this interesting conversation with some of the um, Pharisees, and it says the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So do we fast or do we feast at a wedding? We feast, right? We celebrate at a wedding. So Jesus is the bridegroom, and so he says, while I'm here, my disciples are going to feast. When I leave, they're going to fast. This shows that after Jesus ascends to be with the Father, Christians were expected to fast, and we see that in the early church in the book of Acts and beyond. 
So whenever we look at examples in the Bible of fasting, you will see, if you flip back through your Bible, go to your, uh, the back of your Bible where it says fasting and just look up examples of fasting in your, in your Bible at some point and read through those examples, you will see deep emotion and feeling attached to those moments. Even here, Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn when the bridegroom is with them? He is associating fasting with mourning. Many of the other examples that I just shared, there's often this, this deep emotion or grieving that accompanies their fast. If it's for repentance, well, they're, they're grieving and mourning over the sin, and so they fasted and they prayed. And I think that shouldn't be too surprising for us because what happens to you and I whenever a crisis hits in our lives or we get bad news? Well, our bodies begin to fast naturally. We're overcome with grief and emotion, whatever the situation might be, and we start to fast naturally. We don't, we don't really desire food. Now, if you're in the church, of course, whenever those things hit a family, what happens? Everyone brings food, right? That's great. Keep doing that, but that's why there's freezers. They can eat it later. But many times, they don't even desire to eat. They just want to sit and pray, and they're fasting oftentimes naturally. We don't want to eat in those situations. And we're usually more eager to pray in those times. We pray in those times because we, we feel the urgency. We feel the pinch of life's circumstances around us. So maybe the secret to prayer and fasting for us is to intentionally import that urgency into our lives more often. We might pray and fast more consistently if we allowed ourselves to to feel the burden and the weight of our own sin more often. Feel the weight of people that we love not knowing Christ. Feel the burden of what other people are walking through in their life circumstances. So our prayer and fasting may not just simply be a discipline issue, but we just don't allow ourselves to feel things all that deeply most of the time. You have to understand that when we talk about these disciplines, the spirit that's behind them, it's interesting that we think of prayer and fasting as legalism sometimes. When prayer is simply communing with God, it's just saying yes to the invitation to delight in him and to commune with him. And we have to remember that it's, it's, it's grace and grace alone that allows us to approach him in prayer. And so we can't just think of it as like, that's just a rule, that's just legalism. The fact that you and I can enter into this conversation with God and talk with him through prayer is an act of his grace that he allows us to do it and to approach him in that way. You know, I still say that the year between uh, college and seminary for me, it was a gap year there for me, was one of the hardest years of my young adult life, mainly because I had uh, gone to University of Texas Arlington, the other UT. There's no football, so my Saturdays are great. And, uh, and so I graduated with a public relations major, and I was trying to get into something in the sports industry, and then something else in downtown Dallas popped up, and so I took that internship. And the idea was, 
I was working in this office complex off of McKinney Avenue in downtown Dallas for a few months, and I was just an intern. But the idea was for it to lead to a full-time position if I did well in the intern program for those three months. And I was trying so hard to do well at this job, and, and I just did not like this particular job. And I think they probably knew that from me. And, uh, and I, would, I would spend my lunch times just down in the lobby just praying and studying and just crying out to God, like, God, is this going to be it for me? Is this what you have for me? And uh, at the end of three months, they said, we're not going to hire you for the full-time position. So I essentially got fired from my first job. I found out that they went out of business about eight months later, so maybe they should have kept me around. I don't know. But... God used that door closing for me to begin to to sense this call towards ministry full-time and pursuing seminary, possibly. And I was wrestling with this this idea, how am I going to pay for that? I I don't have the resources to pay for seminary. How is God going to provide for that? And a friend of mine said, he said, why don't you go take a half a day and just go fast and pray? And I had never fasted and prayed for anything in my life. But I went to a park that day. And I began fasting and praying for God to provide this one main thing. I said, God, if I'm going to go and do what I feel like you're calling me to go do, I need provision. I need you to provide a job for me that provides the flexibility for studies, but also the money I need to pay for school. That afternoon, I go to a meet with a friend who's a pastor mentor of mine. In that meeting with him, he gets a phone call from a friend of his, hangs up the phone. He says, hey, Dave, you should call this guy. His dad owns a business that might be of, be of help to you. So I called that guy, and I got hired on that day for a job that paid my way through seminary the next three and a half years. And I always look back on that as this, this, this powerful moment and remind myself that whenever I got my taxes at the end of that next year, I look at the amounts, and if you total that job with my church little job that I had, it almost equaled the amount that I would have made that first year working at that job in Dallas. And I see how God provided in that moment. And the skeptic might say, well, you know, all that could have happened if you had not fasted and prayed. And that's true. God does that sometimes. He is that kind. But if we fast and pray and he provides, now we have someone to thank. Now we have someone to praise Now we have someone to glorify. If we don't pray and we still get our needs met, we're less likely to see God's hand in that. So you might think that after that first time of fasting and and what powerful story that was, you might think that, well, Dave probably fasts every single week, every single month, the rest of his life. And listen, that's not true. I still struggle, just like you do, to fast and pray. But listen, this is, this is meant just to be an invitation to you, this series. We invite you to fast and pray because you've also been invited to a feast, and it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 19, where it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. God, thank you for how you invite us into this relationship where we can come to you in in fasting and prayer, reminding ourselves as we take a break from a meal or two or more that when our bodies begin to feel this hunger, God, let that remind us that that's how our souls are for you. We often just don't know it. God, help us to see our souls as needing you in the same way that our bodies need food. And God, give us strength. God, help us not to see these things as just rules to follow, but an invitation into life with you, to dwell with you, and to gaze upon your beauty. We pray this in your name. Amen.